0: From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, November 19th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined again by full cycle Stefan Niccolo, who just returned from Glasgow. Hi, Stefan.
1: Hi, Monique. How are you?
0: But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. The new infrastructure bill is an opportunity for impact investors to help rebuild communities across the country. Loredis Harmon and Aaron Siebert of the Kresge Foundation write in Impact Alpha about the chance to design public-private financing to redress the history of racism in earlier infrastructure projects. For example, there's $1 billion for projects to reconnect communities divided by freeways and other blockades. In this week's Agents of Impact call, Impact Alpha explored the tech disruption in small business financing. New players are tackling the challenge of getting capital to small businesses in emerging markets a challenge that has stumped development finance institutions and banks for decades. Leanda Jafta of the People Fund in South Africa is crowdlending working capital for underserved Black-led businesses so they can take on government or corporate contracts. What we're doing is not, it's not new it's actually annoyingly not new. (laughs) The interest rates you probably
1: generally get from banks and that sort of thing is not something that entices people, and people want to have more direct impact and participation in the economy that they exist in. So the crowdfunding
0: was just people saying, look, we want to be part of the solution, but we don't know how. And that's the thinking from the People's Fund, is that how do you you build a people-centric economy? There were yet more big raises for climate funds. Energy Impact Partners brought in more than $1 billion for its second fund to link corporations with decarbonization solutions. Backers include Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund, media conglomerate Cox Enterprises, and Utilities Southern Company and Duke Energy. Climate Fund Managers closed on $67 million for Climate Investor 2, which is blending donor financing with institutional capital to back renewable energy projects in emerging markets. The new fund will take on water, ocean health and climate adaptation. And Generate Capital became a public benefit corporation. The corporate form allows companies to embed their mission into its charter. Generate Scott Jacobs explained the change.
1: So our mission doesn't change. What does change is that the fiduciary duty of the board and the shareholders now includes a duty to the public benefit, in addition to the traditional fiduciary duty to the shareholders alone. Mm -hmm. And we think this is stakeholder capitalism
0: at its finest. Bridgespan's Social Impact published a list of 160 funds creating opportunities for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. While billions of dollars have been pledged to advance racial equity, the majority of those dollars remain on the sidelines. One excuse that's often bandied about is that there's a shortage of investable opportunities. In a guest post on Impact Alpha, the researchers called that hypothesis, quote, patently untrue. Head on over to Impact Alpha to learn about more than 160 funds with strategies to raise the power, agency, and wealth of BIPOC individuals and communities. And Dr. Kelly Burton joined me on the Reconstruction podcast. Kelly is an Atlanta-based entrepreneur and a co-convener of the Black Innovation Alliance, a national coalition of 50 innovator support organizations, or ISOs, who work with small businesses, startup founders, and creative technologists to help them level up and change the narrative. The work that we're doing is really about creating a more equitable and just world, not just for Black people, but we know that Black people are really the, high, the high-hanging the high fruit, not the low-hanging fruit. And what we know is when we do good things for Black people in this country, everyone else benefits. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email each day this week. So welcome back to the podcast. You just literally got back from Glasgow and the postmortems are all over the map. Some people are saying the glass is one quarter full. Others are saying three quarters empty. What's your take? How did it go down?
1: There were for sure some wins out of Glasgow and there were for sure some giant missed opportunities. I think uh, ultimately what we emerge with is a framework that has a lot of gaps but that provides some opportunity for we private sector, citizens, activists, folks in between, uh, to really take the mantle and have a full year of working through this framework leading up to uh, Sheikh El Shara in Egypt, COP 27, um, and really spur what could be some uh, more ambitious than previously thought commitments out of that gathering. So let me just talk through a few of the items out of Glasgow that I think we should highlight for, for the folks listening. The first is methane. right? So we emerged with a global methane pledge that is functionally insufficient. What it says is that we shall, we, the global community and the signatories to it, uh, shall endeavor to reduce methane emissions by 30 percent from 2020s levels. Now, the fact that we're even talking about methane is a win. You know, you know, at full cycle, we focus on short-lived climate pollutants. We're targeting methane with our investments because we understand that it's, its heat trapping capacity is so far outsized to CO2 that it actually is a lever for how we can have more climate impact per dollar invested. And so you know, not but two years ago, methane wasn't even on the map for some of these agreements. It's a big deal that folks are talking about methane. But to reduce 30% from 2020's levels, um, you know, 2020 was probably our, our worst year of methane emissions, actually, historically, ever. So you know, it's, not, uh, it's not gonna make a meaningful dent in the way that it's structured now. But what it, what it offers us is a chance to then think about how capital can move to really blow past that, that 30% reduction level in a way that's actually value accretive to economies. Um, you know, building infrastructure that can uh, avert the emissions of methane because it's clean energy producing and takes you know, a little capacity away from coal and natural gas. That's a big deal, and we should be able to do that now with you know the, the capital groups that have come together around uh, Glasgow. Um, I think the other is waste. You know, you know, you know, we know waste well, and um, you know, again, kind of giving countries an opportunity to build out infrastructure in a way that's uh, accretive to their economies also gives us an opportunity to address the waste issue. And, and anything that rots in waste emits methane, um, so that, so there's an opportunity there. third i think is a a missed bucket and we can talk about it shortly which is agriculture um conversations around ag were largely missing and insufficient in glasgow um but you know if we can think about again what the opportunity that creates looks like then i think there's an opportunity to tackle methane emissions from from ag as well so a methane pledge the fact that it even exists is a good thing the content of it means it's insufficient and we, we now have to come up and pull up the rear and see what we can do over the next year I think the second piece is coal. Uh, so, largely, uh, a number of countries pledged to uh, to phase down coal infrastructure. Originally, the language was phase out coal infrastructure, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle around a last minute change between that terminology. I think generally, the writing's on the wall for the for the coal industry, um, but we have to accelerate its reduction um, and the retiring of hard assets that are in coal and, and coal infrastructure and the mining of coal. I think what we can do, though, uh, even though a lot of the uh, small island nation states and others are really disappointed uh, at the effort led by China and India to change the language from phasing out to phasing down, um, again, uh, we have an opportunity here that I think is, just requires a bit of nuanced understanding. Um, so, the worst of the coal-emitting uh, coal infrastructure, uh, power infrastructure the worst emitters they're in, um, say, the top 5%, are responsible for 73% of the power sector's emissions. So if we are thinking about what we need to do and if we're thinking as investors what needs to happen, uh, we don't need a full phase-out of coal to be the banner under which we then get a lot of blowback and pushback in the sector. Phase-down is, is fine so long as we can target that top 5% and just buy ourselves some room. The 73% is a big number. So. We can play a little chess here and that's what's going to be necessary for us to to really make the glasgow climate pact impactful and you know we know where that top top five percent uh, of infrastructure is it's in countries like poland and south korea there's a few in china you know we know what megawattage they produce we know what replacement costs roughly should be so again you've got you know out of gcp the glasgow climate P- uh, pact You've got pools of capital under the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero um, that are looking to direct capital into, into new infrastructure in particular. And so we don't need to target the whole industry as a blanket. We just need to think about um, the, the worst of that industry and, and really work towards getting getting that transformed and transferred over to, to renewable capacity. So, um, you know, coal came up big in uh, in Glasgow and, and, you know, even though There were some notable absentee uh, members from that pledge so i would call out australia who largely didn't show up and you know um, the folks from canberra should be ashamed of their presence in glasgow um, and their adherence to a dying industry that has propped up their economy but is no longer serving them or anyone else around us Um, and the united states was also absent from that pledge and regardless of the reasons why, we also should take that as a as a, um, a knock against our our commitment, and we really should have to you know make up for that um, in ways big and small to, to show that we're still serious about making commitments for climate. And the the third I mentioned earlier is agriculture, so largely absent from the larger conversations, and the reason is is because of the level of I think um, intellectual laziness. Ag is a really difficult. A t- sector to tackle because most agriculture, despite the images we see in kind of climate uh, filmography, is not large industrial scale farms. It's actually smallholder, small small shareholder farmers around the world who have you know dozens, a couple hundred acres, and are are just farming for subsistence at best, right? And so, how you tackle that is both uh, distributed, it's logistically difficult, it is uh, indigenous to watersheds and areas where you've got to have real knowledge and understanding. And it's just very difficult for governments to tackle in country, let alone to represent on the world stage how they may tackle it in cooperation internationally. There's no one way to do it. But to me, that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And as you know, you know, not only from, from waste, you have from agricultural waste, you have methane emissions. But from the use of fertilizers, you have nitrous oxide. From the tilling of the land, you have CO two emitted and torn up from the soil. And from really extractive, harmful practices, you have poor soil that doesn't sequester as it should. So you have you have ecosystems that don't work as they as they ought to. And and you know so ag plays a really big role in how we get to um, anything close to a reduction of the two point eight degrees centigrade increase that we are on track on to do today. Again, opportunity, there's some interesting private sector led consortia that are coming together to work with governments to think about new ways that technology, new practices, de-risking capital um, can come together. And there's one in particular um, being led by uh, Satya Chabati, who's the former head of the UN environmental program, uh, undersecretary general of that program um, called the Global Alliance for a Sustainable Planet. And now we should look to that to see a model by which we can then think about governments as not the only answer for for how we get some of these big blocks tackled in the coming years ahead. And I would just say, you know, there's a a clip that everyone should watch, the full talk given by the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Motley, um, both as an indication for the tension between kind of small island states in the global south and the industrialized nations of the global north and what really is the the issue at hand in terms of the lack of commitment, the underfunded nature of the pools of capital that were promised out of the Paris Agreement, um, and really think about, you know, and, and, and observe an indictment of something I think we've all been in one way or another uh, subscribers to, you know, which is that you kind of do this level of development equitably, and that there's nothing to recover from in terms of how certain things uh, came together in our global economy, you know, and and, you know, it's these are island nations and folks that, are on the front lines and are really feeling it, and um, the the absence of capital and the lack of teeth in the commitments is shameful, um, and and really is something that she speaks to quite eloquently and directly, um, right in the face of global leaders who who had to hear it and take it and and then you know use that, and she used that to kind of uh, indict what the negotiations could and and in fact were were in the room. Meaning I, you just heard me you just heard some truth can't unhear it. Are you still going to negotiate against the interests of of the global south and of, of, you know, citizens around the world?
0: So speaking of indictments, um, what about the indigenous and other youth activists, many of whom never got into the main room?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a difference between, um, presence and inclusion. There were quite a few indigenous, uh, folks from various tribes around the world Present at Glasgow um, not all were credentialed to get into the blue zone Which is where a lot of the the leaders were having negotiations. So that end of itself is something that needs to be fixed um, But even even for those who were uh, credentialed to get in um, What I observed and this is just me as an attendee um, was a bit of a, a tough entry for folks who were probably uh, met with more challenges than most even getting there Right, There's uh, a couple of indigenous folks I spoke to who canoed for three days to get to the nearest airport to then to get to another airport to fly to Glasgow. This is 5% of our global population that's responsible for stewarding 80% of our biodiversity. right? And without the biodiversity, we might as well not talk about methane infrastructure or anything else. Right? We, we lose the battle if we don't have uh, biodiversity uh, and, and efforts to really steward what's left of it. We've done a, a pretty tough job um, or getting here to, to preserve biodiversity around the world. Um, I saw a couple of things that were you know um, a little challenging to, to see and to, to realize that there really wasn't a kind of agency or stewardship of those folks, of indigenous folks, in the room. The most infuriating, or rather the most heartbreaking, um, there was a, a young indigenous climate activist from the Amazon, uh, Shai Suri, uh, who was on stage at the plenary at the end of one of the sessions, So the last person to speak? I observed a few, but but a numerous amount of delegations uh, take that opportunity to to pack up and and walk out to head to their uh, respective negotiations. Um, what a disgusting display of the treatment of indigenous folks by the global north, and of the uh, really kind of the way that that treatment has waterfalled down uh, in action, just in the room, right? So, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, what she was saying in that session is that she has friends who have been murdered for standing up against deforestation and against the action, actions being taken by global corporates in her community and in the, in the uh, Amazon writ large. Right. So this is life and death for people. And, you know, what a gross display that, you know, there are delegations who would walk out and not hear that from someone who's not just a leader but really um, articulating something that should tug on our shared humanity and our ability to, to make decisions by virtue of that. Um, so really um, not encouraging, but I think we have an opportunity now that we know kind of the best ways, the better ways to, to do this. And because these things are being said to make COP27 someplace that's not only inclusive, but the year ahead of it, um, to be able to engage with indigenous communities in these conversations because uh, they, they have to be heard and, and they are the key for so much of what we need to do Um, as a result of everything that happened in Glasgow.
0: Okay, so carbon, methane, ag, and then price. What happened to putting a price on carbon, and what does that mean for impact investors?
1: So um, there's a lot of talk around carbon markets. Um, I think there are likely emerging kind of confirmatory frameworks out of the uh, TSVCM, the Task Force for Voluntary Carbon Markets, an effort being led by Mark Carney, you know, in in parallel to uh, Alak Sharma's office, to navigate how do you integrate. 140 plus different markets um, that have different frameworks and levels of understanding of what makes a carbon credit valuable, different prices, um, you know, limited price signals, uh, accountability, permanence, other things that are kind of disparate across the industry. How do you organize all that into a unified framework? Um, It's a really difficult task. And and the reason it's so difficult, or one of the reasons anyway, it's so difficult is because before you can actually get to your uh, outcome, you've got to destroy a lot of value. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of carbon credits flying around uh, in the markets, plural, that where you can do so uh, that are not additional, meaning they're credits that were uh, issued from land or sequestration uh, capacity that was already going to happen, right? So there's no additionality in terms of we're now using a certain amount of uh, land or, or ocean-based systems to draw down and sequester additional carbon and its equivalents. Or they were triple, double, quadruple counted, meaning you didn't have uh, accountability standards. You kind of had dodgy verifiers in between, and so we don't know actually what's happening with what's attached to that credit. Is it real? Is it not? We have no idea. Um, and, and you know, the the additional challenge is even when you have credits that are attached to, to natural environments. You know, forest fires are a thing, right? So what happens when you know the acre of land attached to a carbon credit uh, that's actively being traded and valued? Goes up in a forest fire. You know, do, you, do you retire that credit? Do you have to sell it back? What do you do? So there's some tough questions that we've got to answer, you know. And then I think you know the real task is to then figure out how do you make up for that value destruction on the way towards a unified uh, system or a way towards um, you know a framework that works for everyone. And it's not a question that I think has been fully answered. And so the way I see it is whatever the cost of that is, including the cost of you know, getting markets uh, aligned and in sync with what the frameworks for carbon credits should be, Um, understanding concepts like accounting. So you count a credit once for its sequestration capacity in a real, um, and then things like permanence, right? How long is that carbon sequestered? You know, there's uh, emerging data that says actually into sequestration into soil is an impermanent thing and actually is just part of the general nutrient exchange and hydrology of a region. And so then you have an argument for, Say healthier ecosystems being the driver of sequestration as opposed to just healthier soil, or rather just soil generally sequestering. You know, um, via plant matter that pulls carbon down. And it may not be a permanent solution, so permanence is a question, and time is a dimension that no one's even talking about. Um, you know, if you're sequestering for a thousand years, that's great. If you're sequestering for a day or two, um, that doesn't really help the, the challenge and, and is not, therefore, I think, a, a good basis upon which you, you issue credits. And I think ultimately, you know, how folks should be thinking about it is that the real assets that we build um, are the rope, right? That's the content, the, the, the things that have to exist to either avert or draw down uh, emissions. Uh, carbon credits are just a thread, okay? They add value to that rope, they're part of it, but they're not the thing. And so a lot of these net zero pledges that we hear from corporates, from investors, are solely contingent on carbon credits or on future negative emissions technologies that have not yet been commercialized. And so we should be really wary of the latter, and I think we should be really understanding of the role of the former. Um, and, and then what that offers, though, is, is many other legs of the stool Taking a primary role in how corporates and investors achieve net zero, not just putting down we're going to buy up a billion dollars of credits and call it a day, um, let alone at prices that you know for carbon that don't make uh, sense in, in the market, right? So you've got a couple of players now doing that and saying they're net zero, but they're paying seven hundred dollars a ton for CO two, so it just doesn't it doesn't make sense? We've got a lot of kind of organizing to do around just the thought we put into how we achieve net zero in the role that carbon credits play, but we should be wary of seeing them as a panacea or as a tool that can solve all of the problems they're not, right? They're just a thread in the rope. Um, the rope is really what we have to get to work doing, and that rope is consistent of kind of a new class of sustainable infrastructure that's beyond solar and wind. It's nature-based solutions that have the capacity to draw down at scale, and, and that includes you know, uh, marine ecosystems, kelp forests, and seagrass, and and uh, mangroves in particular, we should be working really hard to drive capital towards restoration and preservation of those ecosystems and expansion of those ecosystems. And then countries should be able to notch those uh, efforts against their commitments that they've made in Glasgow, that counts. And so we gotta give hand folks an opportunity to get a win here. And, and then you know, issuing credits is a nice way to get a, lot of, a little bit of value add uh, on top of that, but they're not the panacea, they're, they're just a piece of the, of the pie.
0: In all of this, we also happen to pass the infrastructure bill here in the United States. Um, at least a little bit is left in that Build Back Better social infrastructure legislation. So can you share a little bit more about the infrastructure investing, your your core bread and butter, and also the broader reconciliation bill? Share us a little more about what's your take on that.
1: You know, infrastructure is, has been the, the question du jour for, for many many of the days, right? So it's uh, something that we've been talking about a lot. Um, thankfully, it finally passed in, in one form. And, you know, we've got a bit of reconciliation to do on, on the back end, but at least we have something in hand. And it offers a lot of opportunities for, for impact investors and investors at large to participate in how this capital uh, will come down. So the Biden administration has appointed uh, Mitch Landrew. Uh, to be the kind of head of how this implementation rolls out. Um, That's good. You know, we have capable, we're in capable hands in terms of how the capital then comes to market. But I do think there's uh, a lot of ways that we private sector folks can augment what happens just by doing what we should be doing, which is investing in sustainable infrastructure and and, and real assets. So if you take, for instance, water infrastructure, I think in the infrastructure bill, there's something around 50 to $75 billion dollars of water infrastructure replacement terminology and and, and capital that comes down uh, to the market, I think the two really important things are where and when. So you know not every town and city has failing water infrastructure. And so we've really got to go to where the problem is first, and we've got to have a good roadmap of where that exists. Um, but what it does is it unlocks the, the capacity for operators and for investors to also participate in that infrastructure build out. You know, so if you're replacing water infrastructure you know, we happen to have, at Full Cycle happen to have a company called InPipe that replaces uh, valve infrastructure, or rather bypasses valve infrastructure to generate clean energy. You know, so we want to follow that, that deployment of capital around the country and then see the opportunity to further build out positive infrastructure that not only creates clean, carbon-free baseload power, but is part of the upgrading of communities that can be the beneficiary of that power right? So we have an opportunity here to augment what this infrastructure bill can and should accomplish, but we've got to have our hands on an understanding of where and when. That's the, the first thing. I, mean, I think the second thing is, you know, the Biden administration and, and Secretary Buttigieg's office um, has uh, been quite vocal around the intersection of kind of environmental justice and infrastructure rollout, and as they should be. Um, I think one, one lever that's super easy to achieve and allows us to to generate a lot of value in communities um, that need it is getting the capital in the hands of operators who identify as MWBEs or otherwise disadvantaged business entities in the eyes of the federal government. If we can do that, then now you're directing capital to a community for a community. And that's a lot more, that's an amplifier, it's a magnifier of what we otherwise would have done. If the capital just goes to the large uh, implementers of infrastructure, of the world and, and does not have attached to it mandates for MWBE inclusion, we're going to miss the mark. MWBE stands for Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprise. It's a designation that exists in every state uh, in the country and at the federal government level. Um, and It's meant you know, to kind of identify where we can have uh, outsized community effect uh, for entities that typically are smaller and don't get a look at contracts the way uh, larger firms get a look at federal and state uh, and local contracts. There's a right way to implement these things, you know. You know, if you're if you're going to Flint, Michigan, and you're going to replace water infrastructure, and there is literally a water pipe infrastructure company in Flint, Michigan, that's woman-owned, why wouldn't they be eligible to receive that contract and do that work in their community? Remember, for government contracting, it is a very difficult world to navigate. So that woman-owned enterprise in Flint, Michigan, might have to navigate a 200-page RFP, hire a consultant for 100k. Or more, and then not even have certainty that she will win the bid after doing all of that work. It is prohibitively expensive. It's very time intensive. And time's not a friend, first of all. And second of all, that is a barrier to entry that just eliminates value creation. It doesn't actually preserve or, or create new value, it just allows for um, contracts to go un- unawarded. Um, you know, the federal government has a pretty bad track record of not awarding contracts. Um, that are outstanding. So every year, it's about $800 billion of federal contracts that go unmatched, right? It, it would be a shame to have done all of this work to pass an infrastructure bill and have significant portions of it go unmatched and, and therefore have that work not be done simply because government is uh, difficult to navigate for anything other than large corporates who have whole teams who can do that.
0: And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Sifan, and as always, thanks to our producer... Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Right now we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing and until then, take care.